Good day. You are tuned into the 81st edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. On the program today, we are going to be hearing a conversation with uh, journalist and writer Dimitr Kenerov. Um, Dimitr has focused on chronicling uh, the Balkans. Uh, he has published in a number of magazines around the world, including The New Yorker. His work tries to locate the social, cultural, political experience of this moment in Bulgaria and in the Balkans. I was able to meet uh, Dimitr in Bulgaria this past summer, and I heard a lot of interesting stories from him uh, surrounding uh, the ways that um, you know cultural debates happen uh, right now in the country, looking at the role of the arts, uh, LGBTQ plus performers, um, challenging uh, sort of the boundaries of social con- conservatisms. Also, more broadly, what does youth culture uh, look like in Bulgaria today? Um, of course, it is the poorest member of the European Union. It is also a country where we see a lot of uh, emigration. So a lot of people, um, you know, Gen X, um, millennials, um, even Gen Z, young people are leaving the country uh, en masse for Western Europe and also internationally. So what does this uh, result in? Uh, I mean, Bulgaria is basically one of the countries in the world with the largest population decline. Um, so there's a lot going on there. And, you know, even locally within Sofia, Bulgaria's capital, there's been a major protest movement this past year. So I thought it would be helpful to have a broader conversation to try to locate this political cultural moment within the Balkans and Bulgaria particularly. Um, so I'm sharing this conversation with you today at, uh, here on Free City Radio. This is an exchange with Dmitry Kenerov, um, Bulgarian writer and journalist. Sure. Yeah, my name is Dmitry Kenerov, and um, I'm a freelance journalist and uh, translator and and the writer. And uh, you know, I was born in '81, so sort of I was the last generation. Uh, of people who really sort of rem- have at least a vague memory of the socialist period. You know, things changed in November 89. So, uh, so you know, uh, I, I did have to go the first, you know, the first three grades through in school, uh, through the old system. So uh, in a sense, I'm in a, in a kind of strange, straight sort of transitional generation where uh, as we have this childhood memory of, of the previous times and also of the of the craziness of the 90s and sort of the anarchy of it, which was, you know, there were really poor times, um, the 90s, uh, you know, great economic hardship, hyperinflation, you know, nothing in the stores, and yet one of the freest, you know, periods uh, in sort of uh, not only Bulgarian, but I would say sort of like Eastern European history, uh, because suddenly there were no there were no rules for anything. You know, you could you could do whatever you wanted uh, in art or whatever in life, and 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 of course, you know, a lot of a lot of, you know my parents and the parents of everybody else uh, sort of suffered through those years. But but also, I think for young people, that was an exceptionally engaging, exceptionally exciting time. 
um, you know, to grow up in. So, uh, so you know, I, I went to an American school, actually, um, uh, which was reopened. It used to be, you know, sort of running in the 30s and early 40s and, and until the sec after the Second World War. That was reopened in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, and although it was a private school, you know, it was a kind of like pretty, you know, cheap and people were like, very much, I mean, um, Bulgarian society at that time was still fairly egalitarian or equally poor, you can say, you know, uh, there were just no such great differences in wealth. You could see, you know, some of the mafia people already sort of accumulating wealth and all that. But the 90s when I grew up in, um, yeah, that was that was one thing that I remember very well. But people were equally poor, but also, you know, whether they were, they were um, you know, engineers or, you know, with like uh, university degrees or they were laborers, they shared a sort of similar experience in certain ways, similar daily experience, which, which was an interesting thing to see how things have changed so radically in the last uh, 30 years or 20 years, you know, uh, let's say since the 90s. Uh, anyhow, I ended up, you know, in the States uh, as a student and then, uh, you know, uh, stayed there for about 11 years, almost 12 years, studying American and English literature. And then I and then I figured out that actually academia was not for me. And I decided to go, uh, you know, I had started working in journalism and sort of doing literary journalism, this mixture of, of you know, uh, uh, journalism and, 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 you know, sort of more novelistic sort of techniques and and this is something that was not is not still you know sort of a tradition in Bulgaria it's not popular in Bulgaria but uh, you know it's something that uh, concerns me a lot sort of this mixture of of factual documentary writing and the form the artistic you know coupled with the artistic form what it produces so I ended up in Bulgaria actually based a little bit in Istanbul a little bit in, in Sofia afterwards uh, trying to write not only about Bulgarian society, but about sort of the region. I hate sort of this sort of national, you know, sort of definitions of borders where you're like, I'm writing about Bulgaria or Bulgarian society. I'm sort of not interested in the world, but I'm interested in, let's say, the region uh, itself, uh, you know, the former Yugoslavia, sort of the Balkans, also the Black Sea region. And this is sort of my habitat, you know, my turf. And, uh, and so... You know, I, I try to I try to sort of go beyond the national borders and beyond the idea of, of nationality. And I'm writing mostly in English, so so that's another thing. You know, I'm a Bulgarian citizen. I grew up, you know, in Bulgaria, went back to Bulgaria, but really I feel myself sort of to belong to another literary tradition, or if not to belong to another literary tradition, at least to be sort of a in between this this sort of space. Uh, Bulgarian, uh, Bulgarian, and sort of English-speaking Anglophone, I guess, uh, a person. So that's that's pretty much the the short of it. Uh, you know, I've written on stuff in Iraq. You know, I've been to, to like war zones in in you know uh, Crimea and like former Yugoslavia. I've done stuff on environmental stuff, environmental problems, shale gas, and gold mining in the region. You know, I've written on culture. Uh, it, you know, basically anything that I'm interested in, that's what I pitch to my editors. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this is this is pretty much it. It's a long introduction. I'm sorry for for it, but you know, yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Bulgaria joined the EU in 2007. So there was a lot of excitement about that. Um, actually, it's been sort of the goal, you know, sort of seen ever since the 89, when, when sort of the Soviet bloc fell apart, uh, it's been uh, sort of the, I, the goal of Bulgarians, you know, to, to join the real authentic West, you know, sort of the Western civilization, which we belong to and not like the Eastern empires, you know, whether the Ottoman empire or the, the Russian empire, or the Soviets, to which which was like sort of more barbaric, you know, to the East and so on. So it was this sort of idea that Bulgaria belonged to like Western civilization and not to the East. It, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a strange, you know, sort of fetish, but it's there. I think it's true of like places like Poland as well, uh, to a certain extent, or Hungary, even, you know, places that are, that are more west of, of, of Bulgaria to a certain extent. But uh, there, was, there was this excitement that Bulgaria would finally find its rightful place uh, in the European uh, Union, European community before that. And, uh, and because of the crisis of the 90s, when everything was falling apart and it was, it was such a harsh time, it was believed that, you know, finally by joining the EU, our standards of life will increase. We'll have this sort of equality of income or if not equality of income, then at least everybody would, would be able to live better. Uh, in a sense, you know, that has been and has not been realized. I would say joining the EU, uh, has definitely increased the standard of living. I mean, it was pretty low in the 90s. So, you know, there wasn't like the bar wasn't very high. Uh, and so so definitely, uh, definitely there have been like huge benefits. And I think people were mostly excited, especially young people about being able to travel without visas. We felt like before that living in this sort of cage where even after 89, when the communist regime wasn't, controlling sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the travel of the sort of movement of people from in or outside of the country, out of the country. Um, there was this sense that, you know, even if you want to go to Germany, you had, there was this complicated process of applying for visas and a million documents and waiting for a month and so on. So you still felt confined to this very small geographic space. And I think the, mo the biggest excitement was not even the movement of goods, or the movement of, you know, sort of finances or whatever, you know, it was the movement of people, the free movement of people. That was sort of what Bulgarians were looking for. Um, and so and so that happened. And, you know, there was a big brain drain, actually. A lot of people went to the West to work in one capacity or another. Um, but, uh, but the problem was actually that, you know, the EU had the great sort of, hope that by pouring in money into Bulgaria, and they poured in billions and billions of euros, that, you know, will sort of our standards would equalize, our infrastructure would sort of be the same as in Western Europe, you know, things would, you know, that was the whole idea of, of having these funds coming from the EU to be able to, to sort of catch up, so to speak. Um, with Western Europe. The problem is that the problem is that the high, you know, the big, the big, you know, corruption that's been going on and, and, and the EU has has been giving this money without sort of the proper the proper checks and balances. And this money has ended up in corrupt pockets oftentimes huge infrastructure projects. And we're not talking here, I mean there's corruption everywhere. So I'm not like 
put pointing the finger, you know, obviously even in Canada or you know the states, I mean, there, there, there's huge corruption on a high level, but we're not talking here about like somebody taking 10% or 15%. We're talking about projects that are, you know, tailored to be like fake, basically, you know, you take like, you create this sort of fake, fake project and you apply for money from the EU and then you just pocket the money and there is no, not even a result, like not a highway, not like, you know, like a farm or anything. Everything is sort of like a Potomkin village. So, so actually joining the EU because it has not provided these proper checks and balances uh, has actually increased corruption enormously. And because of this sort of network of people that sort of gravitate around this sort of EU projects around the government and so on, uh, the wealth gap has increased enormously. So some certain people have enriched themselves. You know, now you can see in Sofia the kinds of cars that you've rarely seen, like California, you know, or any kind, or like uh, Bavaria. Uh, so, so there is this sort of sense that that uh, a certain group of people has enormously enriched themselves with these like EU funds. But you know, the rest, uh, I think the vast majority, sort of has uh, has not seen that as, as many benefits so 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 yeah the eu the i think i mean a big i'm a big fan of this sort of project of you know removing borders of of actually you know not being defined by your national identity but being defined by something larger something more human uh you know more like core uh to, to our sense of who like we are as humans but uh but at the same time the eu has also had its negative sides. And now I would say, you know, just to finish off with that, now I would say the problem, and it's not a Bulgarian problem anymore, I think it's a European problem, is that there is a lack of horizon. The EU, you know, we don't, you know, before that we expected, you know, joining the EU is sort of the next thing, you know, and now we've sort of, now we're there and there's nowhere to go. And I think the EU itself is, uh, devoid of ideas of how to reinvent itself, what to do from this point on. And, and I think there is this sort of general sort sense of malice of things falling apart, of rot that has settled in. I mean, things are still moving, you know, we're still like living our lives uh, as much as we can uh, with like COVID restrictions and all that. But there is this general lack of direction, sense, you know, there is a direct, you know, sort of sense that that there is no horizon and we don't know what we're going to do and everything feels very fragile. Of course, the whole idea of Europe, the whole idea uh, of this sort of East and West, they are constructs, right? Intellectual constructs that we have been dealing with for, you know, since the ancient Greeks, I guess, uh, you know, the barbarian civilization versus barbarians and so on and so forth, uh, North and South or East and West. Uh, uh, you know, there was a, you know, the 19th century, early 19th century Metternich, the, you know, uh, Austrian sort of, uh, you know, uh, politicians say, you know, there's like east of Vienna, 
the Orient begins, right? So what's the Orient? What's the, where are the borders? And sort of uh, there's this whole, uh, you know, there's, you know, this professor Larry Wolf has a wonderful book, you know, Inventing Eastern Europe. And, uh, and, uh, and so there's always been this process of, of where the border lies, what is Europe, what is Eastern Europe, what is Western Europe, and so on. So I don't, you know, uh, you know, these kind of borders seem uh, eminently artificial to me. Uh, yet, you know, we live in a, in a world where we have to, you know, work with borders, we have to work with language, we have to, you know, uh, you know, we, we have to express what we, what we, you know, some kind of reality. So there is inevitably putting some borders around around stuff. Um, now with the with the with the with the migration crisis, you know, I think if that had happened, you know, before the age of the internet or before this sort of polarization, I'm not sure that 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 would have had the same, you know, say, let's say the Syrian crisis of migration and so on would have had the same effect on societies in Europe. Uh, I think people, you know, because objectively speaking, even a million or two million refugees in a, in a sort of a community of 500 million people is not a lot. And, you know, it's not, it's not something that would significantly change, you know, the religion or the culture and so on. So, so I think to a certain extent, this, this crisis was manufactured by the media as well and by the rise of the internet, the rise of sort of fringe movements and the way they would, before that they would be disconnected from each other and suddenly they had this platform on the internet and, and politicians who, you know, were using this sort of thing to, to, to gain power to, to uh, you know, this sort of nationalist discourse um, to be able to... Um, to you know, find a path to the heart of their constituencies. Uh, but but I can tell you, for example, initially when the crisis began in 2013-14 in Bulgaria, because I was part of sort of the, some of the relief efforts uh, for refugees, uh, there was no like real ill feeling. In fact, you know, there was a lot of sympathy towards Syrians and and their plight. Uh, but that that sort of started changing. Although the numbers were not great, I think in Bulgaria, the height of the crisis, we had maybe ten thousand people. That's a seven million country, seven million per, you know people country, ten thousand people. Most people, you know, most Bulgarians would not have even seen you know a refugee. Like they would have not seen one. And yet, the media and like politicians and like the internet, they started sort of creating this sort of sense of urgency that we are being attacked, that we have to. We have to like close the borders because you know fortress Europe has to preserve its culture, uh, whatever that means. Uh, and and so and so this and this crisis became perhaps the biggest one in the European Union after the Greek financial crisis. Before that, uh, which was sort of what what really started rocking the boat. But this this thing became so central to to who people thought they were and how they thought of themselves you know, like the migrants versus the ones who live in, in Europe, that even though objectively speaking, as I said, it doesn't have a great impact, uh, ideologically, you know, in terms of perception, it does. And in the end, reality does not matter. Perception matters, right? This is what, this is what happens at the end. This is what defines our, you know, reality. Uh, you know, uh, so, so the facts on the ground were not that, that dire, but the facts of perception 
or something different. So, um, so yeah, this this became a major point, and and now it has sort of disappeared, but not quite. You can see what happened on the Belarusian border uh, as something you know when when all these refugees were were shipped there basically by Lukashenko's regime in Belarus to try to pressure Europe into accepting these refugees or or you know talking to him directly. So basically, although there were like 2,000 refugees or 3,000 or 8,000, the numbers even don't matter in that respect, Europe or, you know, sort of the European Union stood behind Poland, which is a, a very autocratic regime currently and has a lot of problems in the judiciary with the European Union and so on, stood completely behind Poland in that respect, not to let any refugees in because that would cause another sort of cycle, I think politicians saw that, another sort of ideological questioning and like crisis within the European Union itself. And now with COVID, this could further destabilize the whole region. So it was seen, the numbers did not matter. It was seen as a matter of like utmost importance that we do not create the discourse around refugees in Europe once again. And that was sort of almost like a real politic, even in even on the on the side of the Germans, you know, and Merkel, who, who was the one who and who welcomed at first all these refugees. So, so really, you know, uh, this sort of sense of identity of who Europe is—it's uh, to me, it's a manufactured thing, but uh, but it's very real as well in terms of its consequences. Yeah. Any nation, really, you know. So when Bulgaria started being defined as as sort of this sort of nation in the uh, second part of the 19th century, you know, obviously, you know, it was populated by various people: Armenians, Turks, you know, Jews, Greeks, uh, Romanians, all kinds of like Christian communities or Muslim communities, and so on. So. Um, so inevitably, you know, when you create these sort of borders and national nation states, you know, they tend to sort of be so monolithic and try to exclude differences and exclude others. Uh, and especially, uh, you know, I mean, it was a process of sort of a national, uh, of national definition that's been going on for a hundred years. But basically the, the communist regime in its late, late phase um, decided to reclaim some of its legitimacy, the Soviets did a similar thing in a sense by by you know sort of creating the discourse of nationalism. You know, I mean, communists are supposed to be internationalists, right? I mean, workers from all nations unite, and so on, and so forth. But uh, in fact, they they were ultra nationalist in their in their you know late sort of ideology. They started even looking for these ancient roots of the Thracians in Bulgaria, or like how we came from this. Uh, the sort of like places, you know, from like the ancient times. I mean, the Bulgarian coat of arms had two dates, two years on it, 681 
you know, when Bulgaria was was founded, supposedly, you know, that's the date we have, the, the year we have, 681, and 1944, when the communists took over Bulgaria. So these were sort of the two defining moments of Bulgarian nationhood in history. Uh, but you can you can see how even at that time that sort of that ancient history was trying to be reclaimed by a communist regime, which usually believes in the future and sort of, you know, sort of creating a new a new kind of world, but they were very backward looking as well. And so, and so they tried to define Bulgarianness as this new thing, you know, Bulgarian nationality is this new thing that would give legitimacy to the regime. So they started playing nationalist card, just like Yugoslavia did in the 80s, by the way. And and anyhow, it was uh, you know that 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 process because we have 10% Turkish population left over from the Ottoman Empire, uh, when the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, Bulgaria sort of separated itself from the, from the Ottoman Empire. That, that was a big, much bigger percentage, but a lot of people also, there was a lot of migration from Turks into uh, the former Ottoman lands, you know, and then Turkey. Anyhow, we had this population of 10% Muslims and the government wanted to change their names forcefully and to vulgarize them, to make them, you know, uh, you know, basically uh, to to uh, erase their Muslim identity uh, and their Turkish identity. So there was a big exodus of people. I mean, there were all kinds of, you know, sort of uh, uh, clashes with the police at the time that was in the late 80s. It was called the so-called the, the revival process. Uh, but in the end, a lot of the Turkey opened its borders and there was like this big migration of Turks uh, back, uh, you know, to Turkey, not back, because because their their homes were, in, you know, was the territory of Bulgaria. But anyway, so there was this big migration crisis at the time as well. And you're right, you know, when you say there were different movements of people back and forth, that was uh, that was one one uh, example. But I think it's, you know, it's a rather unique example. Uh, generally, the movement has been sort of east to west mostly of people from Bulgaria. That was an interview with Dmitry Kanarov, uh, who is a Bulgarian writer and journalist. Uh, his work has chronicled this cultural and political moment right now in Bulgaria and the Balkans. Um, and I really wanted to highlight um, his voice and also have an opportunity to uh, visit a more uh, broad conversation about what uh, is happening in the Balkans today. Uh, in relation to the EU, in relation to the world, in relation to the migrant crisis that is ongoing, um, given the Balkans is um, basically bordering both uh, the edge of Europe and um, uh, West Asia. So thank you so much, Dimitr, for joining the program today. And to go out, I'm going to visit a few tracks that I worked on uh, for an album called A Balkan Spacewalk, these are collaborations with my brother, Jordan Christoph. Thanks for tuning into Free City Radio. We share two new episodes a week. Uh, you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts. Uh, just look up Free City Radio. We also broadcast on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>